Welcome to Know My Faith. My guest is Levi Hazen from Life and Messiah uh, in the States. Levi, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. Yeah, I was interested in an article that you wrote for the uh, Ariel magazine for Dr. Fruchtenbaum, all about uh, uh, from Romans 1.16 to the Jew first uh, and then to the Gentile, a term that Paul uses two or three times in the Scriptures. Uh, so we want to explore that and, and what that means. So what's your take? Does, does it mean that uh, if I'm going to do evangelism, it's a waste of time going to Gentiles? I've got to go to a Jew first? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, no, it certainly does not mean that our evangelism among our Gentile friends um, is a waste of time. Uh, in fact, even though my name's Levi, I'm a Gentile myself. So the Lord has a sense of humor uh, naming me Levi and then calling me into full-time Jewish ministry. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the essence of that article that you're referring to, Rob, um, is that uh, when Paul uses the word first there in Romans 1.16. What he's indicating for us is that ministry to the Jewish people should be a priority in our evangelism efforts, and it should certainly should not be neglected. Uh, and so what's interesting there is that uh, Paul uses the word, uh, the Greek word proton yeah. for the word first there. And uh, that's not an uncommon word throughout the, the Greek New Testament. It's found quite frequently. And it really has the essence of something being of priority or even first in chronological sequence. Um, and so we can look at other passages where this word is used and say, okay, what does Paul mean here? And I think what Paul's saying there when he says uh, the gospel message, of course, is for everybody, uh, but it's to the Jew first. What Paul is saying there is that it is especially to the Jewish people. And we certainly see that philosophy of evangelism being played out in the ministry of Paul himself. Yeah, the, when I looked it up, because uh, you know you, you put that in the article, so I looked that up. That proton, and it's uh, you know, it's first we take Manhattan, then we take New York. It's it's a it's a chronological term, really, isn't it? You know, first, first, first. You have dinner first, and then you have dessert. Um, and I think I think the biggest. I suppose the biggest question that people have is, even though it's a chronological thing, does it mean, because we know in the early days, of course, the gospel went to the Jews first. The first 10,000-odd Christians, believers, were all Jewish. So it went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And I suppose the question now is, is that is that a historical statement by Paul or is that a, a system's the wrong word, or is that, the way it still needs to be today? Yeah, it's a great question. I think to answer that question, we just go back to the text itself. Uh, I think, you know, Paul says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, he's writing in the present tense yep. there, you know, and, and I think anybody, any Christian today would say it's true. We're not supposed to be ashamed of the gospel today, presently, and going forward into the future. And then Paul says, because the gospel is God's power for salvation. And so my question to our listeners would be, is, is the gospel still God's power for salvation today? And uh, the answer, of course, is a resounding, yes, it is. That's the only way that we can be saved today. Uh, and then Paul writes, it's to everyone who believes. Again, still in the present tense. Yeah. And again, the majority of your listeners probably would, would agree that the gospel is still the salvation 
um, the God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, present tense. And then he says, first to the Jew and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And if the first part of that verse is true today, if the second part of that verse is true today, then the third part of that verse is true today. And what Paul is saying there is not just that, well, the Jewish people historically received the gospel first, and then it went to the Gentiles, and now it's all about the Gentiles. Yeah. In fact, if you look at Paul's praxis, if you look at what he did and you follow him throughout the book of Acts, what you see is that even though Paul was called and called himself an apostle to the Gentiles, where does he go into every single city first on his journeys to share the gospel? Yes, he goes to the synagogue, of course. He goes to the synagogue because he knows that there are Jewish people there. So if if Paul was simply writing Romans 1, 16 and saying, well, it's not really about the Jewish people anymore. They just received it as a historical priority. Then why does he go to the Jewish people first into every single new town that he goes in? You know, there's even an instance, Rob, where he is stoned and left for dead. And he says, that's it. I'm going to the Gentiles. Yeah. And he goes to the next town. And where does he go? <laughs> he goes He goes right back to the synagogue because he wasn't talking about abandoning the Jewish people as a priority. He was talking about in that particular town, he went to the Jewish people first and then shared it with the Gentiles. And then he went to the next town and he tried to perform the same philosophy. Have you always been of this mindset? Um, have you always had the, we'll call it a messianic understanding of the scriptures and of Messiah? Or is this something that you've come to over a period of time? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's definitely something that I've come to. The, the deeper that I dove into the scriptures, the more Bible study uh, that I that I did, and uh, really taking a trip to Israel and just really becoming familiar with the Jewish roots of our faith. Um, you know, I grew up in a very Gentile small town in uh, Indiana, which is in the United States. Um, I, again, didn't have any Jewish friends growing up except for the Lord Jesus himself. And it wasn't until the Lord called my wife and I into full-time Jewish ministry uh, where really we began to, to really see the scriptures uh, for what they teach and say, okay, wait, let's slow down here. Uh, what does Romans 9 through 11 teach about Israel and concerning God's promises and concerning, you know, the fact that they're irrevocable? Well, what does that, what does that mean? So yeah. it was a process for sure. So if I'm in a church in Indiana and I'm thinking, let's do outreach, do I have to then go to the census details and find, okay, how many Jewish people have we got in town before I can do this outreach? But, you know, that's that's the what people are thinking when we talk this way. Every time you mention to the Jew first and then to the Gentile or then to the, to the Greek, we're thinking, okay, do I have to find all the Jews and knock on their doors first? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are certainly those... Um, who would say, yes, that is the, the way that ministry should be performed. Uh, we're given that example. Uh, I'm not quite of that position. I think when Paul uses uh, the word proton, um, he's talking primarily about priority, that the Jewish people and, and sharing the gospel with them should be made a priority. And so, for example, for my, my thesis statement um, at Moody, Moody Seminary, uh, it was on how every believer should be involved in Jewish ministry in some way, shape, or form. 
if the gospel really should be a priority for the Jewish people, then every believer, in my opinion, should have some part in it. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to go out and do Jewish evangelism. As you know, Rob, there are a lot of ways to be involved in ministry without being the one knocking on somebody's door. So, for example, in Romans chapter 15, verse 27, Paul is carrying a monetary gift from the Gentile churches in what was then Greece, and he's carrying it to the saints in Jerusalem who are Jewish believers. And he says, indeed, they are indebted to them. They owe it to them, Paul says, about these Gentile believers. Yes. You think, whoa, wait a second, Paul. The Gentiles owe it to these Jewish believers to share with them? He says, they owe it to them because they are indebted to them spiritually. Yeah. We Gentiles have received so much from the Jewish people, including the scriptures, of course, uh, the covenants that we get to be partakers of, not overtakers, uh, the Messiah himself being the greatest thing that we've received through the Jewish people. Paul says the Gentiles have received so much that they owe it to the Jewish people to become involved in a monetary way. Yeah, I think with the, I think this is one of the things that we need to understand. See, know my faith. We're very much involved in uh, in hosting Israeli travellers as they travel around New Zealand, around the world, and uh, most of the hosts are Christians. So the the question comes up: Why are you doing this? You know, why do you allow us to to stay in your home for free or for for very little? Uh, and I think understanding that that debt that we owe, uh, you know, to a, to a man called Abraham to start with. Uh, and understanding that from the Jewish side, but it's interesting you you raise that uh, that bit about Paul raising the funds from the Gentiles, uh, and uh, I'll press say this by saying it wasn't a New Zealander, it was a foreign speaker, and he wasn't American. But at a at a seminar that I was at, um, the one of the speakers did an amazing thing. He he split the audience up into six different groups, and he said he said you know you're the you're the uh, the Jerusalemites. You're you're in Judea. You're Corinth, and this. And he did by memory went round, did the whole life of Paul, picked up Timothy here, and took him on his travels there. And then he got to the end of it, and he's talking about all this money that they'd raised, and he used the whole message to say that we need to tithe to the church. And I'm going, no. The whole message of that is that we Gentiles owe a debt, a debt of our salvation. To the Jewish nation. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, you know, going back to your question about what do we mean when we say Jewish priority? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it simply means that we ask the Lord, Lord, how would you want me to be involved in reaching Jewish people with the gospel? And maybe it's prayer, right? I, I never say, or at least I try not to say, maybe it's just prayer because yes. prayer is so effective and it is yep. really the fuel of missions. Uh, but even if God calls somebody, to, to reach an Amazon people deep in the forest of the Amazon jungle, and there are no Jewish people around for hundreds of miles, they can still pray. And they can pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. They can pray for the peace of Jerusalem and so forth. Uh, so there are a myriad of ways to be involved in missions to the Jewish people, even if that's not your full-time calling. One of the things we need to remember, as you said before, when you were growing up, your only Jewish friend was the Messiah. Uh, and we need to remember that these are his people, that, that God chose the nation of Israel. They are his special people. And I, and I wonder, you know, 
how would you feel? You say, well, I'm going to go and tell everybody about you except your own people, except your own family. And uh, I, I can imagine God going, yeah, no, that doesn't sit right with me. That's right. That's right. And, you know, there's a reason in, in Zechariah chapter 2, God calls Israel the apple of his eye. No, we've appropriated that. That's that's believers now. We've taken that verse. That means believers now. It doesn't mean Israel. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, obviously, replacement theology is is not something that we adhere to. And no. um, uh, so, yeah, it's uh, the 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 hermeneutic is uh, which for those who may not know listening, the hermeneutic is basically the science of interpretation of scripture um, is just so key when we're talking about Israel and the church and making sure there is a distinction between the two, um, making sure that we're not stealing the blessings given to Israel and leaving behind the curses for them to deal with. Yeah. And, you know, often when I'm talking end times with people that that don't, that haven't quite got it yet, and you go, okay, so Jesus is coming back to reign as the king of which nation? Yes, he'll be the king of the world, but where's he going to reign from? Which nation is, you know, Rome wanted to rule the world. Germany wanted to rule the world. During the millennium, one country will rule the world. Which country is that going to be? Which people group is that going to be? Uh, yeah. Or if I'm asking people, I go, I go, you know, do we do you worship the the god of the Greeks? Do you worship Zeus, or do you worship Odin, or or Hong Bang, the creator god of the Vietnamese? They go, no. I said, well, whose whose god do you worship? They go, oh, we worship the one true god. I go, that's a cop out. You worship mm. the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the god of the Jews, and and. Really, the scriptures come alive when you understand that. Yeah, that's right. And then all of a sudden, you don't have to do any gymnastics with the scriptures. Whenever the scriptures say Israel, or whenever they say Jerusalem, it means Israel and Jerusalem. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to uh, spiritualize anything. Yeah. Uh, and you just you do yourself a big favor, and you do the text a big favor by allowing the text to remain in its place. Um, to your point about when Jesus comes back. He's not only going to be king of the Jews, he's going to reign in a established, a reestablished, a glorious Jerusalem that's a real physical Jerusalem on the earth. And then so some people say to me, Rob, and maybe you have this too, uh, they say, well, you know, that's, that's just in the future. Why don't you just let that play out as it is and, and focus on the present? But I don't think that's the admonition we get yeah. from the scriptures. For example, Isaiah, who I call the biggest Zionist of the Bible, aside from God himself, uh, Isaiah writes the following in chapter 62, verse 7. He says, do not give him, that's God, do not give him rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise of the earth. In other words, we're to be petitioning God. We're to be praying to God, saying, Lord, return, establish Jerusalem, make it a praise of the earth. Come, Lord Jesus. And I don't think a lot of Christians understand, Rob, that when they say, come, Lord Jesus, that's what they're asking for. Yeah. Uh, a new government, a new reign, and it's going to be wonderful. The other side of things is that if you look at, I mean, if you call it a numbers game, in the taking Old Testament and New Testament scriptures together, it says that two-thirds of the Jewish population will be killed during the tribulation. 
we know that at the rapture, whenever the rapture occurs, you know, but the, at the rapture, only those who are followers of the Lord Jesus uh, will be taken. So you go, okay, so if I'm not going to tell these Jewish people about the Lord, and uh, I'm going to leave them until this end times when Jesus comes back and they all cry out, you know, Baruch Abah, B'Shem Adonai, uh, then that'll be fine because, you know, they'll be saved then. You go, okay, so the more people that don't come to know, the more Jews that don't come to know the Lord now, the more Jews will be killed in that tribulation period. That's a, that's a pretty hard mindset for a Christian to have. Yeah, it is a pretty hard mindset, and it also um, ignores the urgency that anybody's life could be, you know, cut short today. Today yeah. could be my last breath without the rapture involved. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, the Lord knows the number of our days, but uh, of course we don't. So, yeah, I, I, I think that um, that is probably not the position that we see in the scriptures when it comes to the urgency by which we need to be sharing our faith in a loving, gentle way, of course but sharing our faith nonetheless. So if somebody is looking at uh, at outreaching, even if there's a pastor watching or listening at the moment, uh, what would be some suggestions that you would have for them in a way to just start this journey? Yeah, I think for anybody um, who maybe wants to start the journey, you know, I've, I've, I've come to love and recommend quite frequently a wonderful book that's really a primer on Jewish evangelism. Uh, and it's called You Bring the Bagels, I'll Bring the Gospel. And uh, it's very fitting title for Jewish ministry, but it just introduces you to some, to some really good questions that you can begin to ask your Jewish neighbor or your coworker. Um, you know, ask them about the biblical feasts and become uh, more familiar with those yourself because the Messiah is in the feasts of Israel. Yep. Um, ask them if they read the scriptures, are they, are they aware that the Bible was written and preserved by their people? What do they think about end times events if they have? So just asking questions, but that's definitely a great resource. You bring the bagels and I'll bring the gospel. You can get it on Amazon.com. You've got a, uh, I thought you were going to mention the free ebook that you've got on your website. Yes, we also have a free ebook um, that listeners are more than welcome to download and even share with your friends. Uh, you can visit lifeinmessiah.org.org. And um, we've got a free ebook there under our resource section that is specifically about sharing your faith with the Jewish people. And yeah. so it's it was created just for that reason, to, to be a help, a help for uh, Christians looking to share their faith. So tell me about your own uh, podcasts, because you, you do podcasts as well. Yeah, at Life and Messiah, uh, we do run a podcast. It's called the Tove Podcast. And uh, Tove is the Hebrew word for good. And we named it that because God's heart is ultimately good toward Israel and the Jewish people. And so we've got about 115 episodes out there, primarily, um, you know, it's, it's consisting of a range of interviews with Jewish believers in Jesus and their mm -hmm. testimonies. Um, we also do quite a bit of Bible teaching uh, about Israel and the Jewish people uh, and some other biblical topics. Uh, and it's really just, it's it's a free resource uh, for the edification of believers. Folks can find that on our website, or they can find it on Spotify, iTunes, or any other place you get your podcasts. Aren't they wonderful, uh, social media? Well, it's wonderful at times. Uh, we've just yes. we've just started yeah. a series called, uh, just as we're recording this, we've just started a series called uh, Evangelical, sorry, uh, Exegetical Fallacies, uh, which is looking at some of the 
the ignorant things people say about God and from the Bible on social media, and you go, that's, that's not what the Bible says. Yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad you're diving into that. Yeah, if you go into that, I mean, we, we talked about it, you, you sort of mentioned it before, the replacement theology. We've had pretty much 2,000 years of replacement theology. When you read some of the early writings of the church fathers, and even Paul talks about this in some of his letters, the Gentiles were beginning to take over the church, and it was no longer it was no longer a case of, oh, can Gentiles also worship the Messiah and the one true God? It was now a case of, can Jews be Christians? And we've had 2,000 years of that. It, it's a hard thing. If you've been brought up with that, and that's all you know, it's a hard thing to break through. Yeah, it is, unfortunately. Uh, the best way I've heard it described is like a uh, very long, very heavy locomotive train that's been going for 2,000 years. And just imagine what it takes to slow down that train. Yeah. Uh, it, it takes a lot. And so, but but that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have proper Bible teaching. And ultimately, as you know, Rob, this conversation is about much more than just what's going to happen to Israel in the end times. It has to do with the very character of God. Because if we really do serve a God who can just neglect his promises to a certain people group, uh, unconditional promises, by the way. Mm. If that's the kind of God we serve, then what does that say about our future, even as individual believers or as the church? Uh, the church hasn't been perfect. I don't think anyone would try to make a case that the church has been perfect. So how imperfect does the church have to be in order for God to say, you know what? I was going to send Jesus back but I've decided not to now. I mean, aren't we thankful? Yeah. Our obedience or disobedience is not the basis of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Now, the church certainly believes that about herself, and they very well should, but they should also believe it about Israel because it's the same God, and yeah. our faithlessness has no factor on his faithfulness. Even when we look at the story of uh, of Moses with the with the golden calf, when when God says to Moses, He says, "No, nah, <laughs> had enough. I'll start again with you." Um, even if that had happened, he was still faithful to his promises and covenants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because Moses was an Israelite. But what we've said with the whole replacement theology is that God in the future could say, you know, no, I've had enough. I'm going to, I'm dropping everything. I'm going to start again with the Inuit Indians. And they're the only people that can go to heaven. Changed my mind. Sorry. You know, throw out the Bible. We'll write a new one. Uh, if, if God is able to do that with the Jews, then he's able to do that with us. And, that, and what you're saying is he's not able to do that because God is not a man that he should lie or that he should change his mind in that way. That's exactly right. Yep, God's God's not going to do that. And in fact, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, uh, Paul makes it very clear, speaking to Gentiles, that he's not going to do that. In fact, he can't be any clearer when he opens up Romans chapter 11 and he says, God has not forsaken his people whom he has chosen or whom he has foreknown. He says that multiple times in the chapter. And then concluding in verse 29, he says, God's promises are irrevocable. Yeah. It's just 
it's not going to happen. And yet this locomotive of replacement theology just continues to continues and continues. And I, I, I think the main question is, Rob, what's, what's been the fruit of replacement theology over these last 2000 years? And uh, for anybody familiar with Jewish history, you know that it's primarily written in blood. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And uh, though not all, but much of that blood has come at the hands of the church yeah. because of the belief of replacement theology. If God really does hate the Jews, then I should too. Yeah. One of the uh, books I narrated for Ariel Ministries is uh, is Israel Betrayed, uh, part one, which looks at the history of the church's attitude towards Israel, towards the Jewish people over the 2000 years period. And uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a hard book to narrate for two reasons. Uh, number one, it's got a lot of long words in it. Um, but also when you're, when you're reading it, I remember um, years ago, I'd read a couple of books. I'd read uh, Leon Uris's book, uh, Trinity, which talked about Ireland and the potato famine and there. I'd read Sitting Bull's biography. And then I read this book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which talked about what the uh, the government did to the Navajo people. And it was so... It was so hard to read. I could probably read three or four pages at a time and I'd have to stop because I found myself weeping. And mm. it's very similar with this book, Israel Betrayed. When you read it, you go, D -d really? Did, did we, the Christians, do that? And the answer is, yes, we did. And did we do it accidentally? No, we did it on purpose. Yeah, it is, uh, it is quite sad. And, um, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the book, even by uh, Martin Luther, uh, called yeah. on the Jews and their lies, which is a very tough book to get through. And um, you know, Martin Luther did some great things. I'm very glad that he stood up to the Catholic Church and and preached that salvation is by faith and so forth. We're very thankful for that. But that's not the part of church history. Those aren't the parts of church history that our Jewish friends are aware of. Yeah. And so, if nothing else, becoming more aware of the what I call the darker side of church history, um, really helps us to understand what our Jewish friends are thinking when they consider, should I walk into a church? They're going to be singing, possibly, um, a mighty fortress is our God. They're going to be singing these hymns written by these very anti-Semitic people. And am I comfortable with that? Yeah. And so it just helps us understand that our Jewish friends are quite aware of certain aspects of church history that really were not taught. Um, you know, I took a church history course in a, in a Christian university, Taylor University. I got my bachelor's degree from there. I took church history, said nothing about how horribly we treated the Jewish people. Mm. And I think that's the majority of the Christian experience growing up in the church and then going to a Christian university of such. Um, you're taught all the wonderful things about church history, and that's great. There are wonderful things about church history, but it doesn't help anybody when we leave out those terrible yeah. um, instances that you're referencing. We find this uh, very much in New Zealand, if I use the, uh, the, the, the Pākehā and the Māori side of things. Uh, our history, an awful lot of our New Zealand history, was not taught uh, in primary school, I'm always amazed with you Americans, you know, if, if I asked you who the 13th president of the United States was, you could probably rattle it off the top of your head. 
But for us in New Zealand, we were taught about people like Abel Tasman and James Cook, who were the first discoverers. Uh, we're, taught, we're taught about the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the treaty between the British and the Maori. A- and that's it. And you go, hang on, that was 1840. That's 180 years ago. What happened in the middle? And it's like, well, actually, we don't want to tell you what happened in the middle. It's not very nice what we did to the Maori people. And so this part of church history is also very much hidden from us. And whether or not, and, and, and I don't think there are, I don't think there would be too many pastors purposely hiding that nowadays. But I would say what they're doing is they're ignorantly hiding it because they haven't been taught it. That's right. So they don't know it, so they can't teach it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think it's some kind of conspiracy um, from the elites in the church to keep all this stuff undercover. I just think it's, it's not something that we teach. It's not something that's risen to the level of, of enough people, of enough universities yeah. and churches that they feel like we need to talk about it. And of course, our concern here, Rob, is that this is affecting the Jewish people. Um, This is affecting the Jewish people's reception of Christians and the Christian ideas. And of course, the most important thing, the Messiah himself. Yeah. Levi, thank you so much uh, for your time. I'm going to have fun hunting around your website and uh, I might listen to some of those podcasts while I'm mowing the lawn. But uh, God bless you. Look forward to meeting you in the flesh one day. Very good. Looking forward to it, Rob. Thanks for the work you're doing. Shalom. God bless you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Uh, Do check out the links in the description, uh, particularly for the work that Levi is doing. And if you haven't uh, subscribed to the podcasts yet, you've got two different sets of podcasts you can subscribe to now. Thanks for watching.